Um, this morning we're going to take a little break from our series in the book of First Samuel. Um, but uh, there are there are certain times and certain certain people that the, that the Spirit of God tends to bring into our lives at certain points um, to really help shape us and help um, point us um, more towards Jesus. Um, you you may have people like that in your life that have that the Lord's used in that way. Um, and for me in my life, um, Brad and and his wife Sarah have been two of those people for me and my wife in particular that the Lord has just um, used as as friends in our lives to. Um, just bring us closer to Jesus and point us more towards him um, in a really profound way. In fact, anytime I, I get to share my story, if we've been in a, in a missional community together or whatnot, you, you've maybe heard me say this, but um, when I, after I graduated high school and was in kind of early college, I was feel, feeling this desire to, to do something with the church and to help in some way. Um, and, and Brad was just a friend to me and somebody that um, uh, really just kind of helped open my eyes more, that the Spirit just used to help open my eyes more to the good news of Jesus, to, to the gospel message, to, to this idea that, that what Jesus did on the cross is not just only for my salvation, um, but it's also for my everyday life, um, that it is good news that transforms every area of my life. I was, for a, a lot of my life, just honestly believing that God loved me more on days that I was good and loved me less on days that I was bad. Um, and just through friendship with, with Brad and just the way the Lord was, was speaking to him and, and growing him, and then him just encouraging me, I, I came to see more of the truth of what the gospel was, that, that I have the righteousness of Christ on me through faith, um, and so that when God looks at me, he sees me as righteous, always, regardless of whether I had a good day or whether I had a bad day. Um, and, uh, and Brad and Sarah, we got to, they, they got to live in Long Beach for, for a short period, and we got to have dinners all the time. And um, just two people that have followed the voice of the Lord to go plant churches uh, and to help equip others to plant churches as well. And so... Um, Real honestly and frankly, I don't think Gospel City Church would be here right now if it weren't for the influence of these two on our lives. And so I'm so grateful for them, and I'm so grateful for you to get to meet them uh, and, to, and to hear from Brad today. So uh, I'm going to invite Brad up, and Brad's going to preach yeah. for us. Thanks, dude. Um, goodness. Love you. Love you both. Miss you guys. Uh, yeah. Hello. Uh, I'm Brad. It's my wife, Sarah. Uh, and I, I love this setting. Like, I, I love it. The sun's always not fun. But, um, yeah, it's just so good to be with you all. Um, and, yeah, just I've known, I was thinking about this. Um, I, we've known each other almost 20 years now. We go back to freshman year of high school. Um, so just a lot there. Um, and, yeah, and God's just interwoven our stories so often. It's been wonderful. Rob and Sharon. Uh, were a part of our church planting team six years ago when we moved back up to the valley. Uh, and they were just such a gift and foundation to our church family. Uh, and when Nick had called us and said, hey, we think we're going to plant in Long Beach, it was like, my, one of my first thoughts was, dang it, Rob and Sharon, like, they're going to go, they're going to go. Um, but, but knowing that that's the heart of what we're doing, when we're planting churches, the goal of church planting isn't just to get a ton of people to come to us, it's to equip and send them out. And so um, knowing that Rob and Sharon were with us for a season, knowing that they'd be a deep blessing to this community is, is such a joy. And Nancy next to them is from our church family up in L.A. I guess you guys are L.A. too. Anyways, we're, we're North L.A., the Valley. Um, but yeah, love her as well. So um, today I get to talk about the gospel. Uh, I love preaching about the gospel. Um, I, I hope I preach the gospel every Sunday and every day of my life. I need it. Uh, we need it. And so uh, today we'll just be diving in a little bit to that. So I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll get going with our, our time.
Yeah, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace over us. Thank you. Thank you that you meet us in spaces like this. You are a gracious, gracious King who meets us where we're at. I pray for those who who aren't believing that today, um, whether it's based on their week or their season or whatever it is, God, and I pray that today they'd be encouraged, that they would see you more clearly, that they would see how good and beautiful and true you are. We love you. It's in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, so about 10, year, 10 years ago, my wife and I got married. We moved to Long Beach, got to do Monday dinners with the Ranieris. Um, and, and shortly after that, we felt God was calling us down to San Diego to help um, our good friends, Andy and Jackie Rogers, plant the first restored church. Uh, my buddy Andy was kind of the guy who put church planting into my mind. I didn't know about church planting. It was just kind of one of these things. Uh, the first time I heard about it, I was like, don't we have enough churches? Like, just drive by like the streets, you see them. Um, and, and it turns out we don't have enough churches. Uh, and, and so all throughout the world, uh, and Andy and Jackie were really passionate about planting churches. And so we moved down to San Diego about nine years ago. We helped them um, kind of as associate pastor, teaching pastor, uh, lay a foundation uh, of gospel in that church family. Uh, and then we helped plant another church down in San Diego. Uh, and then God called us to move back up to the valley where we were from, Northridge, uh, to plants restored LA. Um, and so we've been there about six years now. We've seen a couple other churches being planted, um, and, and one of our deep joys, and in, in similar to uh, the Ranieri's, is the gospel being the center of the church. Um, that, that the gospel is, I mean, it's literally your name, right? It's hard to, hopefully you don't ever move on from gospel, the, the gospel, because it's, it's in the name, and it should be, um, that, that this is so, so central and essential, and yet, what's, what scares me is I don't know of any church or any pastor or any leadership team in a church that wouldn't say the gospel is the center of their church, right? Like, could you imagine asking somebody like, hey, what's, what's the core, what's the center of your church? They're, they wouldn't tell you anything other than the gospel. Like, that's the right answer. It's the correct answer. It's at least the right answer on paper. Um, and yet it's so easy to begin to drift from that. Um, and today what I want to talk about is, is through our nine years of experience, helping churches, um, planting ourselves and helping lead other churches, where we want to see the gospel at the center. What I've seen is that keeping the gospel at the center is, is the most difficult thing. It's just difficult. It's easy to drift. It's easy to move on from. It's easy to assume. It's easy to forget. And today I just want to look at five common temptations that, that face us in drifting away from the gospel at the center. Uh, of one, our own lives individually, but also as a church family. So, so we're going to be looking at those. And if you have your Bible, I just want to run to Hebrews 1 real quick. Hebrews chapter 1, I'm just, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. If you've read Hebrews before, um, this may not have gotten into this slide, I don't know, but Hebrews chapter 1 is all about the supremacy of Jesus. It, it, it just is this beautiful letter that starts lifting Jesus up. It says Jesus, the good news of who he is, what he has done. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. See, we have a tendency of drifting, of moving away from the gospel, away from Jesus himself. And we need to pay attention to this. You don't stay centered there for long. 
you begin moving. We are tempted to move on from the gospel. And so um, what I'd love to do is, is show these five temptations of where we're tempted to move on from the gospel. And the one, the, the first one, I believe, is, is, is maybe the, the most important for us. It's that we begin to assume that everyone knows what the word gospel means. Right? I've said it about 64 times so far. <laughs> And, and, and pretty much everyone's like, mm-hmm, gospel. Right, like gospel, like let me write gospel. And like, it becomes a code word even in the church, right? Like the more you say gospel, the more, like, that guy's legit. He said gospel 44 times in that one sentence. He's got to know what he's talking about. And then if you're actually pushed, what is the gospel? We're like, uh, it's complicated. So it better not be too complicated, Right? I mean, hopefully at some point, a neighbor or a coworker will ask you, you'll start talking about life, and they'll tell them you're a part of a church, and if they ask you, what's the name of the church? The Gospel City. They go, oh, what's that mean? <laughs> Nick, Jackie, <laughs> what does Gospel City mean? Right? Like, like, we actually need to know what this word gospel means. It's very important that we don't just use it as a code word, that we have some sense of a definition of it. And now, now I'll give us credit, uh, myself included, that the Bible's not a dictionary. The Bible is not a dictionary. It's a story of God's love for us. So, so you can't just kind of like flip over to Gospel 101 in here and it, here's a cute little definition. There just isn't such a thing. Um, and yet there are passages after passages that give us pictures and glimpses and definitions of, of what it looks like. And one of my favorites is Romans chapter 1. So let's turn there real quick. Romans chapter 1. Our church is currently preaching through Romans, and I just loved these first few verses. I believe Romans, the entire letter, is about the gospel of God. And Paul says the gospel of God in verse 1, and then unpacks it a little bit and tells us what it's about. So Romans 1.1, Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David. You guys are talking about David, I think, and Samuel. David's a part of the gospel story. Descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, chances are if you told your neighbor that's what the gospel was, they'd be like, what? It's, it's still a little complicated. We have to be able to, to be okay with that, right? To, to simplify things just a little bit, if there's, if there's something you can grab, and when, when you hear the word gospel, always remember that gospel literally means good news. Okay? Like if you can't remember anything, they're like, gospel city, it's, uh, we want to be a city with good news. And then they might be like, what's the good news? Oh, Jesus. He's the good news. Yeah. The gospel's about Jesus. It's concerning his son. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and, and ultimately, the gospel's the good news that Jesus is the king of the world. That's the proclamation that the early Christians are proclaiming to everyone. They're going, Jesus is king. He's the king of the world. Now, when I say king of the world, maybe you get the picture of Leonardo DiCaprio on the stern of the Titanic screaming, I'm the king of the world. That's not good news. No offense to Leo. I bet he's a good guy. But the good news is that Jesus Christ rises from the dead and goes, I'm the king of the world. 
the good news of Jesus being the king of the world is COVID's not the king of the world. Biden's not the king of the world. Trump is not the king of the world. Your boss is not the king of the world. Your mom is not the king of the world. Here's really good news. You're not the king of the world. He is. And through the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see what he's like. And as we get a glimpse of who he is, what he is like, we begin to see that this is very good news. That he's compassionate and kind towards sinners. That he's honest, speaks truth. That he came to bring justice. That he loves people deeply. This is the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's concerning him. It's the good news about him. And let us not ever begin assuming. Like even if this crew starts getting it, next Sunday more people are going to show up. And we're going to start saying gospel, gospel, gospel. And people will be like, uh-oh, yeah, of course, gospel. They'll start using it too. It's this, it's this code word that you use in the church and you go, okay, I think this, I'm in, right? And so here, here's an application piece. Let us lovingly one, define the gospel when we say it. And two, ask people what they mean by it when they use it. Not like a self-righteous judgment. What do you mean, gospel? I'm going to get you here. No, no, no. Just, hey, you keep using the word gospel. Like, what, what do you mean by that? Let's make sure we're on the same page. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, was famous for saying that the difference between the gospel, gospel is good news, but what the world gives us is good advice. Like, Christianity is not good advice. It's not like, hey, try this out. See if it works. The gospel is Jesus is the king of the universe. And you get to submit and enjoy him. That he is a good king. That he loves us. That he lived his life for us. That he died his death for us. That he rose from the dead. That sin, death, and Satan no longer have a hold on us. That's the good news. And so we must constantly come back to this defining it and, and, and asking us. And, and seriously, I would encourage you to spend some time yourself studying the scriptures, reading books about the gospel, that you would have some sense of a definition yourself. Like when someone says, what's the gospel, right? I always think back in college, um, friends of mine, we would go to Skid Row late Sunday night, and we'd pass out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just to men and women who were struggling experiencing homelessness, um, we'd go there and we'd just give out sandwiches. And um, I was kind of in an excited, zealous stage for Jesus, and yet my heart was a mess. I didn't know him really, uh, didn't know much, but I was like, we just got to do stuff. And so, and doing stuff's good, um, but, but when our heart's not connected, it's not great. And so, um, I remember we'd go out in pairs of two, and um, me and this gal are walking, it's like 11 midnight, skid row, we're walking, passing out sandwiches. We'd make hundreds of sandwiches on Saturday, and we'd go and pass them out on Sundays. And me and this gal were walking down the street, um, and there was a, a woman who's sleeping on the sidewalk. And uh, the gal I'm with says, "Hey, um, do you would you like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich?" And she was like, "Oh, that'd be amazing!" And she, you know, she sat up and she takes the sandwich. She said, "Thank you. What are you guys doing out here?" Um, and and the gal, she's like, "Oh, we're, we're we're giving out sandwiches and we're we're telling people about the gospel." And the woman, she goes, "Would you tell me about the gospel?" Mm-hmm. We look at each other. She's like, "You do." Like, you started this like you do it and, and again i don't know what i would have said she's like um yeah um like we've never been asked to share the gospel and here's our moment and she's like I, it's like um god he's he loves us she's like thank you and we walked away we're like i know that's part of the gospel but is that the gospel like like what do we and it was just one of those moments like man 
what happens in the moment that someone literally asks you, what's the gospel? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> like, let's be a people who go, oh, it's the good news about Jesus being the king. He's a good king. He proved that he's good through his life, death, and resurrection. It's concerning his son, Romans 1 says. It's about Jesus and what he has done. So one of our temptations is we begin to assume everyone knows what the gospel means. One of our other temptations is that we forget that Satan, the world, and our flesh want everything but the gospel for us. Satan, the world, and even our own flesh that still remains want anything and everything but the gospel for us. This is not just like neutral territory. We're in a war. Like, like there's a spiritual war going on to where like you just don't get this be like oh yeah we're centered on the gospel because 10 years ago Nick preached a sermon on it <laughs> Satan will do anything to take your eyes off of the glory of Jesus look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me real quick this passage haunts me a little 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Paul's kind of defending his apostolic ministry in the letter of the Corinthians. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Listen here, verse 4. In their case, those who aren't trusting in Jesus, those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is Satan's job description? It's to keep your eyes off of the glory and beauty of Jesus. That's, that's his goal. Not according to Hollywood, it's just to do weird stuff. And he can do weird stuff in order to take your eyes off of Jesus. But he can also not do weird stuff so that you take your eyes off of Jesus. He might give you that promotion so you can take your eyes off of Jesus. He might give you more comfort to take your eyes off of Jesus. He might do whatever it takes. Satan doesn't care if you're getting nicer. Yeah. As long as your eyes are moving further away from Jesus and closer to yourself, like, I'm pretty awesome. Satan's like, attaboy. Just don't look at Jesus. Don't, don't be amazed by the beauty and supremacy of Jesus. That's all Satan cares about. That's all. That's it. And so often when we think of Satan, depending on your church background, we're like, oh, that's kind of weird stuff. Satan's very smart. He knows what, what makes you tick. He, he knows your temptations. He knows what you like, what you don't like. And most important, what causes you to move away from seeing Jesus. Maybe it's Instagram. Maybe it's the news. Maybe it's you name it. Satan is not just after doing scary things. To do anything to take your eyes off the glory of Jesus. The world as well. The society that we live in. I mean, that's a little bit more obvious, right? You know, turn the news on, they're like, Jesus is beautiful. <laughs> it's anything but that. 
and even our own flesh, the remaining sin that still lives in us as Jesus is putting it to death day in and day out. But aren't we drawn to so many things other than Christ? Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, he says this so wonderfully. He even talks about how we use Christian things to move our eyes off of Jesus. He says it's not just our self-focus, though. We naturally gravitate, it seems, toward anything but Jesus. And Christians, almost as much as anyone, whether it's the Christian worldview, grace, the Bible, or even the gospel, as if these things were in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus as if the wood had some power of its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries, so easily edge Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It's Jesus Christ. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about him. We're not talking about some book, some idea, some concept. We're talking about the beauty and supremacy of Jesus. One of our other temptations we face to keep the gospel, to keep Jesus at the center, is that we begin to believe that gospel maturity is measured by knowledge rather than love. We begin to buy the lie that gospel maturity, oh, I'm growing in the gospel, I'm growing in Christ. We begin to believe the lie that it's based on our knowledge rather than our love. This is something that God has been working in my soul over the last few years. I love reading. I'm currently in seminary. I could listen to podcasts and lectures all day long. And it's so easy for me to finish a four-hour lecture and be like, me and Jesus, we're good now. <laughs> it's like, maybe. Like, like, did it help you love him? Did it help you love people? Right? I mean, th this is the great commandment. When, when, when Jesus is tested and asked in Matthew 22, what's the number one command? What do we need to do? What does Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. They didn't ask for two. They asked for one. Yeah. What's number one? Jesus goes, I can't separate them. Yeah. Love God and love people. Amen. It's like, no, no, I just love God a lot. People get in the way. <laughs> so the issues of the Pharisees. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the New Testament. They loved God. They prayed all the time. They fasted all the time. People, ugh. And Jesus goes, you actually don't love him. And I know it by the way you treat people. We must not believe the lie as we grow in our understanding. Man, the scriptures are beautiful. Let us learn theology. I'm all for it. But let us not begin to believe the lie that, oh, I've read more. I've heard more. I've thought more. That I'm now mature. Do you love your spouse? Do you love your roommate? Do you have your classmates, your co-workers? That's the marker of gospel maturity. Am I growing in Christ? Let me ask my friends. <laughs> I don't need to take a Scantron exam of theology. You know who knows a lot of theology? Satan. Like he beat all of us at a theology exam. He doesn't love people. He doesn't love God. And this is what 
gospel maturity is. It's based on this. Paul says this so clearly in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the church of Galatia, we're having some arguments. Like, do we have to continue following the Old Testament laws, the, 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 the Jewish laws, in order to become super Christians, be really good with God? And Paul's saying, no, no, it's, it's just Christ. In Christ, it's not about what you do on the outside. It's not about whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you eat these certain foods that are kosher, whether you follow these specific festivals and Sabbaths and all these specific things. All that matters is faith working through love. It's fascinating. He doesn't say nothing matters at all, just your prayer life. But he says there's something that matters. It's your faith, trusting in God that leaves into a life of, a life of love. And so let us continually be a church that is not just impressed with knowledge, that doesn't put new leaders in place because, wow, they know the most. You should know, you should know the basics. You should know stuff. Certainly know how to define the gospel, right? But do you have a life of love? Like, is that what you're known for when people look at you? Paul Miller in his book, Love Walked Among Us, he says love is seeing people, feeling what people feel, speaking truth to people, and serving them tangibly. I love all four of those. I need to be reminded of all four of those daily because I can usually pick one of them. I'm like, oh, I'm the speak truth kind of lover. <laughs> Just like to tell it how it is. It's like, no, 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 that's one component to love. And some of you are like, oh, I just love to feel deeply with people. Good. But that's one piece of it. We've got to see people. We've got to feel what they feel, sympathize with them, but be able to speak truth wherever they're at and ultimately be able to serve them. We actually have to do, you know, it's just for so long you can just text like, blessings. It's like, I love you so much. It's like, I'm in need. Love you. Hope the best. It's like, no, love actually serves. Love does things. And so we must continue to understand that our measure of growth in the gospel is based on our love for God and for people. Uh, our fourth temptation, I think, that is so easy for us is that we begin to lose the awe of Jesus' scandalous grace. We lose awe of his scandalous grace and his radical demands on our lives. Like the longer we walk with Jesus, it's, isn't it easy? Maybe you've heard a certain, maybe you've heard a thousand sermons. And someone's preaching, they're talking about Jesus, you're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. What's for lunch? But like maybe five years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, you'd be brought to tears by the mention of what Christ has done for you. We just get numb. Like I know I'm in a very scary place spiritually when I'm apathetic and comfortable. Like those are warning lights for me. Someone's telling me about Jesus. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have said that better. <coughs> but there isn't a stirring of my affections for him. One of my constant disciplines I try to build into my life is that I'm regularly offended by the grace of Jesus. Like, when was the last time you were offended by his grace? Like, it's offensive, guys. 
Let me, let me read to you a, a parable. Matthew chapter 20, you can go there. David Zoll in his book, Seculosity, says this is the least American parable you'll ever find. Matthew chapter 20. And maybe you've heard it a million times, but I want you to feel this teaching from Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, a denarius is like how much you pay for a day's wage, maybe a hundred bucks, I don't know. A denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, the manager, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, obviously. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Like, when's the last time you got mad at Jesus because he's gracious and generous? It should probably happen quite a bit. Because his grace and generosity is scandalous. Everything in our world is, you earned this, you get this. The kingdom of Jesus is different. It's just different. This story, man, I, I, I keep chewing on it. Because it's, it's, it's so funny. I mean, it's sad. It's, it, in some ways, you're like, that feels unnecessary, right? Like, like, so if you lost track of what was going on, here, here's what's happening. This master of this vineyard, he, he needs some work done in the field. And so he, he hires some laborers. There's some people who show up at 6 a.m. to get out into the field. And he's like, hey, I'll pay you a day's wage. We good? And they're like, yeah, that's great. Day's wage for a day's work? Cool. They're working and he's like, ah, this has got, we got a lot more work to do. So he goes back out to the, the marketplace. He's like, hey, you three, you guys down to work? They're like, yeah. He's like, I'll pay you whatever's good. Cool. And he goes out three hours later, three hours later, three hours later. There's one hour left of the work day, and he's like, ah, I'll just go back to the marketplace. He finds another couple. Hey, come on in. I'll pay you whatever's good. Cool. Now, this is the offensive part. If I was, like, feeling a little generous and I wanted to do something similar, I'd, be, I'd do this. Hey, don't tell anybody, but I'm paying you the same. It's not what happens. The master says, hey, line them up. The one who worked one hour to the one who worked 12 hours. Line them up and show them what you pay them. I mean, you're not allowed to ask what people make, right? 
And here's the manager. He's like, $100 for you. The guy's like, I worked an hour. 100 bucks? And the people who work 12 hours are like, oh my, yeah, 1,200, I think. It's got to be right. Like, that's basic mathematics. And then the person who worked three hours, here's 100. Well, that's weird. Person who worked six hours, here's 100. Person who worked nine hours, here's 100. He gets to the guys who worked the entire day. He goes, here's what I, here's what I told you. And they're mad. He's like, wait, didn't we agree on this? But that's not fair. He's like, fair, you were unemployed. Fair, you had zero dollars at the beginning of the day. Fair, I was gracious to all of you. I paid you. Friends, the story of the Bible is God's scandalous grace to people who don't deserve it. And we need to wake up to it daily. We need to wake up to it weekly. Like there's stories throughout. The cross being the center story that is deeply offensive. Jesus hanging on the cross, saving you. What did you add to it? Your sin. He's not like, Nick, help. I need you to help me. Tell people about me. He's like, no, I'm doing all of it. Genesis 15, one of the scandalous stories where God's making a covenant with Abraham. And they're about to do a ceremony where they would cut some animals in half and they'd line the walkway with the halves of the animals and both partners of the covenant would walk through it to say, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, let me become like these dead animals. And as God is about to do this with Abraham, what's God do? He puts Abraham to sleep. A heavy sleep falls on Abraham. And he just kind of takes it easy. And he watches God with a smoking pot walk through the aisle. Saying, this will happen because of my work. This is sweet news to those of us who know we can't uphold our end of the bargain. But it's offensive to the self-righteous. Can you imagine 10 years ago being at my wedding? Wife and I were up here. Pastor Bobby says, hey, would you mind sharing your vows? I'm like, absolutely. And so I read my vows. I'm going to love you faithfully. I'm going to serve you. All these things. And I finish my vows, and Sarah takes out her piece of paper. I go, shh. Honey, this marriage is only going to work on my vows. Would anyone be like, oh, that was so sweet of him. You'd be like, whoa. And yet anyone married longer than a month would be like, that'd be cool. That'd be real sweet. This is what the gospel says to us. It's Jesus coming to us, meeting us in our absolute desperate need. He goes, I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to live the life you you have no hope of living. I'm going to die the death that every single one of you deserved. And I'm going to rise from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan. Because you couldn't do it. Friends, let's be offended because it brings us joy. When we understand that we're the worker who worked one hour. He's like, here's a hundred. We're like, yes! This is amazing! That's all of our lives. It's a story of God's radical generosity to us that is deeply offensive to the self-righteous. And I know I'm becoming 
getting in a scary space when I start becoming grumbling towards his generosity. What? You're doing that to them? Don't you? Haven't you seen their Instagram, Jesus? <laughs> they don't deserve that. He's like, are you mad at me because of my generosity? Yes. It's exactly what I am. Would we catch ourselves grumbling at his generosity and then very quickly understand that we are the recipients of his generosity? Constantly let us do this. And as we grasp that, we'll begin to see that his radical demands on us, they're scandalous. See, many of us, we have such a small view of his grace so that we keep his demands on us very small as well. It's like, well, he did 50%, and so I'll give him 50%. And you start understanding the gospel of grace. He gave 100%, and now he actually asks for 100% of me. All, all of me. Like, like there isn't an area of my life that's off for Jesus. I don't get to be like, no, no, this, these are my finances. I gave you 10%. You stay away from the 90. <laughs> this is my body. This is my sexuality. He's like, no. I, I, I think of another wildly offensive passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, you are not your own. Your body was bought with a price. So honor him with it. You're like, this is my body. He's like, no, it's not. I bought it. You, you don't even get to do whatever you want with it. It's his. It's like, well, that's too far. Yeah, until you remember what he's done. And as you understand what he's done, you understand that he's the only king who's worth and good when he has dominion over everything you have. Because you can just simply ask yourself, what, what does it look like when I use it my way? Let me look over my shoulder and see the damage I've caused when I'm king of my life. It's terrifying. So he has it all. One of my favorite favorites, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. He's borrowing a parable from his friend George MacDonald. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. <clears throat> At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So many of us are like, hey, Jesus, would you come in? You help me? I got a leaky roof. Would you come into my life and help me with that? He's like, oh, you got way bigger problems than that. <laughs> like, that's cute. You think that's it. In the life of the Christian, and he's gracious. He'll come in and be like, all right, let's patch that up. You're like, oh, we're good. He's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Slowly but surely. He's like, I want all of you. I want every, there's no room in your little home that you get to lock and keep him out of. He wants in and he's going to turn it for good. He's going to transform it into a place of darkness, into a place of beauty and truth and goodness. One for you and for the world. And that's our last 
temptation toward our drifting. We just begin to think that this gospel, we forget that it's for all people. It begins to, like, maybe at best we're like, okay, let's never move on from the gospel. Let's keep it here. Like, oh, look at this, man. And maybe a few people show up each Sunday. It's like, yeah. And we begin to forget that this scandalous grace is for everyone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Everyone. That you don't get to look at someone and be like, I don't think they'd want that. (laughs) I don't think they deserve that. Do you know who they voted for? Do you know what they posted on Facebook? Do you know what they believe about COVID? Not them. Everyone. All peoples. You don't get to be the judge of who deserves to hear the good news or not. And many of us, are we've bought into the lie so much so that if somebody seems like they're happy, let's not bother them with Jesus. Someone shows up lonely and depressed, we're like, I've got some good news for you. Somebody's crushing it, making tons of money, living in a huge home, family's looking good. You're like, I'd hate to bother them. Read Acts. (laughs) I mean, read Acts. It's it's fascinating. I'm down with felt needs. The gospel addresses our felt needs in a beautiful, wonderful way. You're lonely, Jesus can meet you in that. You're sad, Jesus can meet you in that. All those things are absolutely true. You read Acts, they're like, Jesus is king, you need to repent. They're like, we didn't ask. They're like, we, yeah, we know. Because this is true good news, whether or not you think you need it, whether you think you want it, it doesn't matter. It's true for you. So I need to proclaim it. I need to invite you into this story. Because even if you think things are good, they're not even as close to as good as Jesus has it for you. Ultimately, you're building this little small kingdom of yours. It's got something infinitely greater. Would we be a people in Long Beach that we look at our neighbors, we look at our coworkers, we look at our friends, our family, our enemies, and go, I need to tell them about Jesus. I need to tell them about the gospel. I need to proclaim to them and invite them into the story of God's scandalous grace toward them. Let no one be off limits. Let us be very nervous knowing that we are drifting when we haven't shared the gospel in a while. It's a challenge for my own heart. I, get to, I preach it Sunday, so I feel like, oh, I'm doing it. But my personal life, in the coffee shops, in my neighborhood, I know I'm in a great spot with Jesus when it's an overflow, when I just want to tell people about him because he's good. We, we do this with all other good news. I was at a, a coffee shop a while back, sitting there by myself, headphones in, reading a book, and the woman across at the community table, she goes, hey. like, yeah? She's like, I've been seeing a chiropractor. He's great. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, is my posture that bad? Like what? I was like, thank you. What's she doing? She's sharing good news. My body was a mess. I've been. This guy's great. Hey, Jesus loves you. He can do what you can't do on your own. Have a good day. He's the king. You're not. Your friends aren't. Your spouse isn't. It's real good news. I love you. Would you trust in him? We would be a people who proclaim the radical grace of Jesus Christ to all people. No one is off limits. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you. You're so kind. You're so gracious to us. Even as we pray, God, I know that there may be some here that don't know you. They've never tasted the goodness of who you are and what you've done. I pray right now they would trust in you. They would say, see it as sweet, sweet news that you're the king. That what you say goes. And that when we trust you in that, life is infinitely better. It's not necessarily easier, but it's richer, it's more beautiful because we were made for you. Just I pray for Gospel City that, that, that we would not drift, that we'd keep our eyes fixed on you, that we'd constantly be in awe of your goodness, of your grace toward us. That when we're not, that we can be honest about that. Yeah, I, just, I feel dry, I feel numb toward the Gospel. Would we pray, would we press into you, not use that as an excuse to move away from you? Jesus, would, be, would we be aware of the spiritual war that we're in? That you would lift the fog of whatever is going on in our lives so that we would see the beauty and glory of you, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. It's in your beautiful name. Amen.